Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles now to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to do a meditation on Christmas this morning. We're looking at the incarnation, which is really what Christmas is all about. The incarnation in light of the covenant of redemption. So that's going to be kind of what we'll be looking at together this morning. So in Luke chapter 1, I'd like to begin reading in verse 26, one of the great passages that describe events centering around the birth of our Savior. So I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 1. And as I'm reading the Word, I remind you that this is the inspired Word of God. So please listen carefully with faith and also reverence. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, the incarnation of God the Son is one of the central events of redemptive history. In many ways, it's the apex of human history when God the Son takes to Himself a permanent human nature so that in one person, now you have two natures, fully God and fully man in one person. And this is the glory of the incarnation, which begins with the conception and also with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas uh, is not a standalone event as many people understand it to be. Uh, for many people today, particularly the world, their, their focus on Christmas is all askewed. It's all about the, the worldly values of the day. It's just totally about uh, the secular aspects of Christmas. But they just think of Christmas as kind of a standalone event. It happens in December, and then it comes and it goes. But obviously, when you look at this event from the light of Scripture, you see how glorious and majestic it really is because we see the glory of the story 
And the story is much broader and larger than just a single event that occurs once every year. The people who uh, look at Christmas that way don't understand the full meaning because they separate it from what goes before and what takes place afterwards. It's kind of like reading a mystery novel today. You open up the book and you open it up right in the center and you read ten pages of it. And you find certain crucial events that are a part of the plot, but then you close the book. And do you really understand what's going on? No, you don't. Because you really have to know the beginning and you have to know the end, how it all comes about before you can really appreciate what you've just read in those ten pages in the middle of the book. For many people that approach Christmas as a standalone event, they're just trying to get a little glimpse without understanding the beginning or the end of what that one event is a part of. We actually see in the book of Galatians where Paul says to us, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when the fullness of time came, and that expression, the fullness of time, indicates something very rich. It's a very pregnant expression in and of itself because it indicates that there was a time period when God created all things and then He established a clock or a timer. And every day that timer was clicking day after day after day until eventually you reached to the end of the time period called the fullness of time. And that's when Christ was born. That's when the incarnation took place. That's when God the Father sent His Son from heaven at the fullness of time. Well, that clearly indicates that there was a beginning. There was a prior history. There are events that you must understand to really appreciate the sending of His Son from heaven. Again, it's like that mystery book. And you know, it's interesting. In the New Testament, Christ, the Gospel, and the kingdom that Christ brought are described as being a mystery 20 times, at least 20 times in the New Testament. So if you don't understand the beginning, you don't understand the end, then how can you really understand the event of the birth of our Savior? So what we see in the passage I just read in Luke's Gospel that you can see a glimpse that the birth of Christ must be fit into the fullness of this times. And you see in verse 32, for example, some of the aspects of the, the time period in which the birth of Christ must be understood. In verse 32, remember again, he says that he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So now the birth of Christ is linked back in history to the throne of David. And then in verse 32, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So now you go back to the house of Jacob and he will reign over that house forever and his kingdom will have no end. So you almost have an eternal landscape and history itself in order to understand the significance of the birth of Christ. 
Without that understanding, we do not see the glory of the story of the incarnation and the birth of our Lord. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at that biblical landscape. To look at the beginning and the end of the story so we can better understand the glory of what happened when Mary gave birth to baby Jesus. And that's going to reach us all the way back to eternity past, include all of human history, and ultimately bring us out to eternity future. And in the midst of that, the apex of that, the incarnation, which began with the birth of Christ, finds its its glory and its importance to us. So with that in mind, let's uh, begin by thanking all the way back in eternity past if our little puny brains can do that. When there was nothing but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God in perfect fellowship and love, contentment with one another. There was no creation. There was no time. There was nothing. Eternity passed. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit came together. And not because they needed to, because they were perfect and needed nothing. But they chose to create a world in which they would put their glory on display. And so the Father and the Son and the Spirit made an agreement, a covenant you could speak of. And they decided that they would, as we would understand it in our human minds, that they would create the heavens and the earth that they would create Adam and Eve in the garden. They would include in that plan mysteriously that the serpent would come and tempt Eve and Adam would ultimately fall into temptation and sin and bring a great curse down upon the human race. A curse of death. A curse ultimately of eternal judgment and hell. And all of that was in the mind of God. And then they chose out of that fallen humanity to select a certain number to be saved and redeemed by the coming of a Savior. And Scriptures have many verses that touch upon this idea. A few of them, for example, are in Ephesians 1.4 where we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this is before Genesis 1. God the Father chose out of this fallen humanity some to be saved. In Revelation 17.8, that's when their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And then we read in Revelation 13.8 that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Before anything was created within the mind and the plan of Almighty God, the triune God, the Son of God volunteered to come and die to redeem those that the Father chose. All of this was determined in eternity past. Even His crucifixion at the hands of Pontius Pilate and the Jews were all predestined to occur by the hand and the purpose of God in Acts 4. So then at that point, we find that the triune God launches into their plan and they create the heavens and the earth. They create Adam and Eve. Eve is tempted by the serpent. She sins. She breaks the law of God. Adam, who knew better, 
sinned and ate of the forbidden fruit. He broke the covenant. He brought the curse of death upon him and all of his descendants. And at this point, we see the glory of the gospel story gradually being unfolded within history. So now we move from eternity past now into creation and time. And so God now pronounces His judgments and His curses upon the serpent, the man, and the woman. And significantly, as He begins to pronounce His judgment upon the serpent, He gives a prophecy that begins to unfold the work of the Incarnation, the work of Jesus Christ, which began historically with His birth. But He spoke of the seed of the woman who will bruise and crush the serpent's head. And the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman's heel. This is what's referred to in Genesis 3.15 as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the Gospel. And at that point, the clock has started. From this promise, there is a timer that begins to to click every day until we reach to the fullness of time when Christ will actually come. In Genesis 3.21, an amazing thing also happens in this context that we need to understand. And that is that God replaces the fig leaves that Adam and Eve had made to cover up their own nakedness. Those fig leaves really represent man's attempt to make himself acceptable before God. Man doing something, creating something of his own works to make himself pleasing to God, acceptable to God. And it was totally rejected. So God in His mercy and grace took an animal, sacrificed the animal, skinned the animal, and use those skins, the animal skins, to clothe them with a covering made by God, not made by man. This was actually the beginning of the sacrificial system. We know in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel will bring their offerings, their sacrifices to God. So very early on, God instituted the sacrificial system. Now, I think it's probable, at least possible, that Adam and Eve, when they received the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent who brought the sin into the world through them, also began to understand that this animal that was slain, whose skin would cover the outward results of their own sin, their nakedness, that that was also a part of God's gift. And maybe they understood that the seed of the woman would not only defeat the devil, but also cover their sin as well by something that He would provide. Not animal skins, but in this case, His own blood. So that early on, the idea of atonement, the idea of covering over of sin is connected with the seed of the woman. And then you see that uh, these two themes of defeating Satan and covering over our sin will be interwoven together through the rest of history. But let's move on. Tracing the historical landscape to understand the glory of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 17, we now have a promise given to Abraham that he would have a seed. So now the seed of the woman will also become the seed of Abraham. And Abraham has promised a nation, a land, and a blessing to all the Gentiles. 
And Paul, the Apostle Paul later on in Galatians 3 says, that seed of Abraham is none other than Jesus Christ. So you see, it's all beginning to build the plan of redemption. In Genesis 18, Moses says that God will one day raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people. And God will put His words in His mouth and you will listen to Him. And that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ who will be a prophet. Who will speak forth God's Word. And they must listen to Him. And then in the book of Moses, you have an elaboration on the sacrificial system. You have the Passover lamb, the Day of Atonement, the bronze serpent, so that whoever looks upon that serpent will be healed from their snake bite. And all of this is creating a historical picture, a mystery. Who will it be? How will this be accomplished? It's a mystery of glorious proportions that God begins to slowly weave together through the pages of history. And eventually, of course, all of that will be fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And then you advance forward to the days of David. And David has also promised to have a seed, a son. So the seed of the woman will become the seed of Abraham and also the seed of David. But he will be a king whose throne will be forever and ever. So now, this coming seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, will be a prophet and he will be a king. And then in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, this same person, Messiah, as he will be called, the anointed one, he will rule the nations. And in Psalm 16, it prophesies of his resurrection. And in Psalm 110 again, that he will be a priest forever according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. He'll be a prophet, a king, and a priest. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And then the mystery begins to unfold more. In Isaiah 7, as we have read already, that a woman, a virgin, will miraculously, supernaturally conceive And it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So now the mystery is is fleshed out with more information about the character of the one who will fulfill the promise and save the elect chosen from before the foundation of the world. In Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, more information is added. He will be God. He will be divine. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. So you find that now this person who has been promised ever since Genesis 3 will be none other than God Himself taking the form of a man. And then in Isaiah 53, we come to one of the greatest passages of the Old Testament. The prophecy of this child, this Messiah, who had become a suffering servant, who would be pierced through for our transgressions, not His own, but for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities, not His own. And the chastening of our well-being would fall on Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. That He would 
justify the many and bear their iniquities. He would bring peace between sinners under the curse and a holy God. He would reconcile them together through the shedding of His blood. He would be the perfect mediator. And then we come to Micah 5.2 which now prophesies where He will actually be born. This incredible child that will accomplish all of this. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And this is an amazing prophecy that Micah gives. Because not only will this child be born in Bethlehem, He will come from the days of eternity. An eternal God who becomes human and is born in a little town called Bethlehem. And then finally, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel in one of the most amazing prophecies of 70 weeks actually gives the very year that will launch the public ministry of this messianic person. So to understand the moment in time of the birth of Christ, we must realize that all of history is His story. And that ultimately, the very Mary's maternity is planned from all eternity. So in other words, to understand and cap the, 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 the glory of, of what Christmas is about, you've got to, got to put it in the context of eternity and history as well. And then after we come to this point of where Malachi in chapter 4, echoed also in Isaiah chapter 40, speak of the coming ministry of this chosen child, this Redeemer, this Savior, this God in human flesh, the seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of David, this prophet, priest, and king that Malachi prophesies when he will be introduced to the world. And that will be the raising up of an Elijah, spiritual Elijah, who will appear on the scenes of history. And he will shout out, prepare the way for the Lord. And He will announce the coming of Messiah. And after Malachi's prophecy, then there's silence for 400 years. The clock is ticking on. History has become pregnant at Genesis 3.15. And now in the last 400 years, that pregnancy has come to term. Full with child, history is ready to give birth to the promised one, the prophet, priest, and king. And after 400 years of silence, when time and history are pregnant with prophecy and in its ninth month, with labor pangs beginning, then it's time for God to send forth His Son in the fullness of time. God sent forth this blessed person, man, God, who would save us. And only He can save us. 
He would come forth and fulfill all the shadows of the Old Covenant. He would fulfill all the prophecies that have been uh, given about Him in previous ages. He would become the one and only mediator who alone could redeem and save sinners from their sin. He would save not only Jews, but also Gentiles. And He would die on the cross and suffer for their sins and pay the penalty that they could not pay. And on the third day, rise from the dead and now has ascended to heaven from which He calls all men to repent and believe in Him for salvation. And so now we come to the fullness of the time. And this is what Christmas, I think, begins. It's the beginning of the life, historical life of the God-man. I don't know if any of y'all watch uh, UFC, kind of the MMA. I know some of our missionaries do uh, because they're out there and uh, sometimes they have to break up fights, you know, out in the jungle among the natives. And they actually will get some training in MMA. But if you've ever watched that or boxing, whatever, you have some preliminary bouts, right? And these are the lesser combatants and fighters and they get out there and so they do their their fight. And then you finally come to the main event. And if the, 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 the UFS guy has hired this guy with a huge booming voice and he comes out in the middle of the octagon and he, and he begins to introduce the final, you know, headline, marquee fight of the evening. And he always starts by yelling out at the top of his lungs, it is time. And that's where we've come to in redemptive history. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This main event of history, the incarnation, which begins with the birth of Christ, is to be celebrated. It is celebrated in Scripture. We find that four chapters are, de- are dedicated to the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Matthew 1, Matthew chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. Four chapters that are just celebrating the birth of the coming of this Savior. And it's really quite amazing. The Holy Spirit draws attention to His birth by giving it so much material within the Gospel records to draw our attention to the birth of this Emmanuel, the, the glory of the incarnation of our Savior. And there's a glorious burst of supernatural fireworks, if you will, to draw attention to the birth of our Lord. Let me just quickly walk through some of these fireworks that the Holy Spirit brings about to draw our attention to this event of the birth of Christ. Notice first the role of angels. There's an explosion of angelic activity centering around the birth of our Savior. We start with Gabriel, one of the archangels of God, who goes to Zacharias, the priest, in the temple. And that he and his wife Elizabeth have not had children, but the Gabriel tells him that his wife will have a child. And that's a message from Gabriel. Then Gabriel, who's very busy during this time, goes to Mary in Nazareth and tells her that she will conceive by the Holy Spirit 
and give birth to a son. And then the angel of the Lord appeals to, appears to Joseph and tells Joseph about Mary's pregnancy because he realizes she's pregnant not by him and he's contemplating divorcing her or getting rid of her in some way. And the angel of the Lord said, no, 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 this is of the Spirit of God. So marry her. But that child that she carries is not from you, but it's from God, a holy child. And then the angels appear to the shepherds on the night of our Lord's birth. Shepherds who are in the fields at night around Bethlehem. This is in Luke chapter 2. This is part of the amazing story about this because first one angel appears in the night to the shepherds. And this one angel is just surrounded by the glory of God. And the angel announced to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly when that one angel gave his message, it says in Luke 2 that suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Now, multitudes of angels appearing is exceedingly rare in Scripture. And that's all the more to draw attention and, and awe and glory to the event of Christ's birth. This is a multitude of angels. And they began to sing out. We refer to them as angelic heavenly choirs singing their message to the shepherds. And usually angels appear individually, kind of like a solo act. There's a few rare occasions when more than one angel appear together. Certainly at the second coming, all the, all the angels will come with Christ at the second coming. But at the announcement of His birth, there was a multitude of angels celebrating the incredible event of the birth of Christ. And then the angel goes and tells Joseph in Bethlehem later on in a dream to flee to Egypt to protect baby Jesus from the slaughter of King Herod. You remember when he went out and tried to kill all the babies around Bethlehem? And then after that, an angel tells Joseph to return from Egypt to the land of Israel. And then later on, an angel probably warned the Magi in a dream to flee Bethlehem, don't go back to Jerusalem but to go home another way. Just all this angelic activity. Why? To celebrate and draw our attention to the importance of the beginning of the incarnation of our Savior. And then you see the role of the Holy Spirit also adds significance to this. The very conception of Jesus in Mary's womb is the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A mystery, yes, but it's the Holy Spirit that created and brought about the human nature of our Lord Jesus in Mary's womb. However, He did that. And then the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth at Mary's greeting. You remember when Mary eventually came to see Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist? And when Mary, carrying baby Jesus in her womb, entered the room in the room, 
that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed Mary in Luke chapter 1. And then Mary is moved by the Spirit to express her joy in the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. And then we're told that the infant John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit even when in the womb. And when Mary arrived, little baby John just leaped for joy inside the womb of Elizabeth. And that was the result of the Holy Spirit's activity as well. Zacharias will be filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesy. Simeon will be filled with the Spirit and speak about Jesus later in the temple. And Anna the prophetess by the Holy Spirit would come and give thanks to God for the birth of Jesus. An incredible supernatural display of not only angelic activity, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit again to draw attention to the glory of the Incarnation. When God the Son comes down to earth and takes to Himself a human nature so that He could represent us on the cross and die for our sins. This is incredible. And you see the focus given to it by all the busyness of the angels and by the ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, you have the role of the star in Matthew chapter 2. So that even creation itself lends its light to celebrate the birth and the coming, the incarnation of the Son of God. And so the Magi, who were probably out in, in Persia back then, modern day Iran, so these are Gentiles, see this incredible light. And probably based on Daniel's prophecy and others, they realize that the King of the Jews has been born. And so they make that long trip from the east. They follow the star. They go all the way to Jerusalem. They get instructions that He's going to be born in Bethlehem. The star then turns from being in the west that they follow to get to Jerusalem. Then it turns south, takes them down to Bethlehem. And then this star actually directs them to the very house where Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus were. It's a supernatural star. Explain the light. Many different theories. But what it's indicating is that creation itself is rejoicing and celebrating and highlighting the birth, the incarnation of our Savior. So the Spirit of God, the angels, creation all converge on Bethlehem to announce the entry of this one and only holy offspring into the world who become the Savior of sinners like us. If you look at those four chapters, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and you just see what they say about Jesus in the, in the birth narrative of our Lord. It's incredible. The revelations about who Jesus was. If you just look at those four chapters dealing with events around the birth of our Lord, He is described as Jesus, Emmanuel, King of the Jews, Ruler, Shepherd, Lord, Son of the Most High, Possessor of the throne of David, who reigns over the house of Jacob forever. 
His kingdom will have no end. He's a holy offspring. The Son of God. The fruit of Mary's womb. He's a horn of salvation. The sunrise from on high to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. He's the Savior. He's Christ the Lord. He's the light of the revelation to the Gentiles. He's the glory of Thy people Israel. And He shall save His people from their sins. And this is the glory of the birth of Christ. That the incarnation, this plan that was hatched in eternity past, gradually fulfilled throughout history through prophecies and types foreshadowing the coming of this baby. And then suddenly an explosion of supernatural activity celebrating that now the incarnation has begun in the conception and birth from a virgin of this baby, this child, who will be the Savior of the world. And you find this incredible event celebrated again by the Spirit and by angels and by creation itself. So that the birth of Christ is presented in Scripture as something to marvel at, to praise God for, to worship Him by, just to understand the significance of why He came to earth. And then, once we get past these four chapters, and Jesus is still a little baby, maybe a year old by the time the Magi come, then there is dead silence except for one event when Jesus as a 12-year-old boy goes to Jerusalem. And you know the event is his parents have lost Him and He's there among the wise men and the priests listening and asking questions that dumbfounded them as to the depth of His understanding. But apart from that one little slice, there is nothing about the Lord Jesus. You have this great explosion of attention and activity from the angels and the Spirit of God and creation itself. And then there's nothing except for that one little event for 30 years until it's time for the public ministry of that little baby to begin. And that's when John the Baptist will pierce the silence with his booming voice out in the wilderness saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Make ready the way of the Lord, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And based upon that incredible, powerful introduction, then Jesus begins His earthly ministry, which lasts for approximately three years, which leads to the cross, the atonement, fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, bearing our sin, suffering the wrath of God that we deserve to endure in hell forever. He bore that on the cross for sinners like us. And He died shedding His blood to pay the full price for our redemption. He was buried in a tomb. On the third day, He arose from the dead, ascended up into heaven, and now proclaims to all men everywhere and commands them to repent and believe the Gospel in order to be saved and redeemed. This child born in a manger, 
born from the womb of a virgin, laid in a manger, came to die on a cross. And again, if you, if you don't understand that, then you miss the significance of Christmas. It's not just about a birth. It's not just about a supernatural birth that's celebrated by the angels and the Spirit of God. It's the beginning of a life. A life that lives a sinless, obedient life to God. One who is able to offer Himself being fully God and fully man to be our Savior. As man, He can die in our place because animals can't take away our sin. Angels can't die for us. They don't share our nature. But He shares our nature. He's fully man. But a mere man, a creature, could not take away the infinite wrath of God. He must also be God in human flesh. And that's who He was. So that He could now die on the cross and fully satisfy the just wrath of an eternal God for sinners like us. So really, Christmas is not a standalone event. You've got to understand it in the context of eternity and also in the context of redemptive history. The glory of the Incarnation and the covenant of redemption lays out a plan conceived in eternity past to bring about the one and only Savior, God the Son, taking to Himself a human nature so that He could save sinners chosen by the Father that they might be with Him throughout all eternity yet to come. So the glory of the story is that Jesus was born with great fanfare and celebration and activity from the angels and the Spirit of God and the star. But He was born to die. He was born sinless that He might suffer the penalty for our sins. He was born from a virgin's womb so He might be buried in a rich man's tomb. He died in weakness on a cross, but He was raised in power to sit at His heavenly throne that He might save His people from their sins. And that's the story. And Christmas is a slice of valuable, incredible, magnificent slice of this overall plan of redemption. And if the angels celebrated and the Spirit and the star, it's something to look at, not as a one and only event, but as a miraculous, incredible event that begins the life that leads to the cross and leads to the empty tomb and to a throne in heaven so that now salvation and forgiveness can be offered to you this morning. But in conclusion, as we somewhat understand this overarching blueprint, this plan of redemption from eternity to eternity, it requires that a response be made to this truth. A response from both unbelievers and from believers. For unbelievers who have not yet come to place their trust and faith in Christ alone for salvation, a response is required from you. You must repent. You must turn from your sin 
and come to Jesus Christ who alone can save you. But He opens His arms to any sinner who wants to be forgiven to come to Him. To believe upon Him. To put their trust and faith in Him. The crucified, risen Lord who alone is able to save you from your sins. Have you made that response? Have you come to Christ in faith? And have you seen the evidence of that grace in your life by changes? Not that the changes save us. Faith alone saves us. But is your faith being manifested and being revealed? See, there's a response that unbelievers need to make. They need to come to faith and believe Jesus Christ for salvation. But there's also a response from believers. Because so oftentimes we can read the story and we're so used to it and we read about the birth of Christ and it's just kind of like, oh, ho-hum. And it's so easy to be just drawn into the way the world wants to look at Christmas. But no, we must make a response. We must come back to the Word of God and see the glory of the Incarnation. The beginning of this life that would lead to the cross and the empty tomb for our salvation. And we must commit ourselves to follow this risen Savior. To love Him. To live for Him. To desire to please Him and honor Him by our life. We need to make that response. Or as Paul would challenge us, we need to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Believers, you need to respond to the glory of the story. To the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Respond in faith. Respond in love. Respond in obedience and worship and service. To bring Him glory. We must respond to this truth as well. Well, that is the question. Will you respond? Unbelievers, will you respond? Come to faith in Christ. Repent of your sins. Receive the gift of salvation. And believers, will we respond by seeing just the incredible, supernatural glory of the Incarnation and to worship and praise God that He's provided a Savior for us and to pledge our life to serve Him and worship Him. May God give us that grace to make that response as well. Well, with that, let us close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that as we uh, traditionally this time of year focus upon the birth of Christ, that we can glory in the overall story, the plan of redemption, that we can somewhat understand and appreciate all that You have done and worked out through history in bringing about the Incarnation when the Son of God leaves His throne from heaven and comes down to be born of a virgin. A spectacular birth that begins and launches the glorious life of the incarnate Son of God that He lived a sinless life so that He could die in our place without sin, bearing our sin and suffer the full penalty of the wrath of God that any sinner 
who is convicted by the Spirit of God and wants to be forgiven and wants a new life can repent and believe in Christ and be forgiven and given the gift of everlasting life. And that we as believers can better appreciate, Lord, just the glory of the Incarnation that our hearts are drawn to Christ all the more. That during this season, our light, the light of Christ within us, might shine in the midst of the darkness for the glory of our great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless these truths to our heart and our minds and our lives. Transform us for Your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.